day. Hey, I want to say welcome to those who are joining us online, or if you're joining us even later in the week, we're glad you're tuning in to spend some time in God's Word with us. And if you were here last week, then you know that this week is the second part of a Christmas series calling Christmas in a Word, where we're looking at the specific word that several several different Jesus followers use to describe his incarnation or his coming as God and man at Christmas time. Now, I, I want to admit to you that I kind of feel a little bit like Indiana Jones in that clip from The Last Crusade when, when we're coming together and we're talking about this mystery of the incarnation. This mystery of how in one person, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God and all the fullness of man exist together. And it's kind of like you're, you're taking this step out onto this invisible bridge. It, it, it's mysterious. It's kind of unfathomable. Uh, you know it's true based on Scripture, but you, you, you can't connect it all sometimes. So you're just stepping out in faith, trusting that Scripture will hold true and that, that we're going in the right, right direction and that we're knowing what is truth about Jesus. All the while knowing if, if we err to one side or the other, we're going to fall off into teaching something that isn't true about Jesus. So you have my promise to you that as we're studying this together, I'm going to do my best not to lead you all into a bottomless pit. So last week we talked about this idea of Emmanuel, or God with us. We were in Matthew chapter 1, and we kind of arrived at the conclusion that sometimes, sometimes a great question has more meaning for our lives than just a good answer. Perhaps few people know more about exploring the unknowable or exploring the great questions of the universe than theorist and, and, and string physicist Brian Greene. Brian Greene teaches at Columbia University, and he also wrote a book called This Elegant Universe, where he talks about the complexities and the mysteries of our universe. And in his book, he says something I think really applies well to our study of the Incarnation. He says this in his book, Sometimes attaining the deepest familiarity with a question is the best substitute for actually having the answer. And so as we're studying the incarnation together in these weeks, we're we're really exploring this question of how is it that Jesus came in the flesh into our world. And and my prayer is that through our time together, we're going to come into more familiarity, more intimate knowledge and experience of the true Jesus Christ. So I thank you for joining me as we study this together. Our Christmas in a Word for this week comes from the author of the Gospel of John, one of Jesus' closest friends, John. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 1. John was one of Jesus' followers. He, he spent all of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry following him around and seeing the things that he did. And then after Jesus had ascended to heaven, John's trying to figure out, how can I explain what Jesus did and who he was in a familiar way? So in John chapter 1, John tells us, his version of the Christmas story. Now, if you've read the Gospels before, if you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you might say, I don't necessarily remember John writing about the Christmas story. That's because John does it in a little bit different way than Matthew and Luke did it. While Matthew and Luke tell the literal events that happen surrounding the Christmas story, John does it in a more metaphysical way. Or, Or in other words, he does it in a way that is beyond what is perceived reality. I think of it like this. John tells the Transformers version of the Christmas story. The version that is more than meets the eye. He's saying beneath the surface, there is so much more going on. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 1. 
verse 14, John chapter 1, verse 14, and John writes this about the first Christmas. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word. John's Christmas in a word word is the word word. And I know that's way more words than I needed to say that, but it was just really fun to spit it all out at one time. At the same time, though, we look at what he says, the word? John, that's kind of underwhelming, isn't it? That's like your significant other all through December saying, oh, you can't wait to Christmas morning. I have the best gift for you. All for on Christmas morning, you to open up an Amazon gift card. It's like they didn't give you anything. John, you didn't really seem to give us anything. The word. What word is it, John? But when we get beneath the surface of our word, word, and we look at the Greek behind what he is saying, we see that what John is telling us has this deep and rich meaning. It has this meaning that is so much more than meets the eye. You see, John is writing to a very broad audience. You know, he's writing to some Jewish people like Jesus who lived in the area of Palestine as well as to Jewish people living all throughout the rest of the world. But he's also writing to people who are not Jewish, who would have much more of a Greek worldview. So he's trying to figure out how exactly can I explain Jesus in a way that everyone will understand. You know, there are some ways to do it that Jews would understand, but Greeks wouldn't, and vice versa. But he's trying to explain the gospel in an accessible way to everyone, and he, so he picks a very, very specific and precise word. He picks the word logos. Logos. It does translate word, but also means something so much more, and so much deeper, so much more ideal. See, to a Jewish reader of John, Logos would mean the Torah. Logos and Torah were one and the same. Now, you might have heard the word Torah before. If you haven't, or if you don't remember, Torah specifically refers to the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But, but it has a much more broad meaning to that. See, Torah doesn't just mean the first five books, but to a Jew, it also it represents the way to God. It's saying, God is out there. How do I get to him? Well, well, following Torah. But Torah wasn't just passive, like, here's the path you pick. Like, when you get off the turnpike, are you going to go to Pittsburgh or to Ohio? It, it was an active, it was an active way. It was, it was really the, the divine being that would guide and communicate with God's people. And so Jews would have understood logos to mean God. But, but what about the, the non-Jewish people that were reading this? Would they have to go and take a crash course in Judaism first? Well, well, absolutely not, because Logos also had a very broad and noble meaning in the Greek word, in the Greek world. See, to the Greek world, Logos meant the divine mind or reason that holds the universe together. That worldview felt that there was this force that could not be seen that brought order to all the chaos in the world. It, it, it was this force that made the world make sense. We get our word logic from it, a word which refers to something that makes sense. 
The Logos was this force that held everything together. It was, it was sort of this more real thing behind the perceivable reality. One uh, BC writer named Philo, he explained it this way. He said, the Logos is the tiller by which the pilot of the universe steers all things. A more modern way to say this might be, the Logos is the keyboard through which the divine programmer codes the universe. So, so are you tracking with me? It's this idea that there's something out there that holds everything together. And this has been a very well-known concept in the Greek world. So, so whether he's explaining it to a Jewish person or to a non-Jew, John chooses this word that makes the gospel message of Jesus accessible to everyone. But, but what about us? We don't use this word logos anymore. In fact, if you went wherever you're going after this service and you started to ask somebody, what do you think of logos? They're going to look at you like crazy. But, but the idea behind it, I think, is still really, really prevalent in our world today. Except it, it, it sounds different. It, now it sounds a little bit like this. Logos in the world today sounds like this. Everything happens for a reason. Do you ever hear anybody say that? Everything happens for a reason. It, it, it's like this idea that behind all the events in our world, there's some divine plan or some master plan or s- some story that's being told. Everything happens for a reason. Or, how about this? We're part of something bigger than ourselves. Right? We're just a piece of something that's part of a, a bigger connected whole. Or this, the universe is out to get me. You, you feel like when bad stuff happens to you, it's not just random. It, it was like something is out to stop you. Like there's this bigger force beyond you. And finally, you might have heard this one. I, I believe in a higher power. See, we don't call it logos, but we still have in our world today people as well as us who believe there's something, there's something more. There's a higher power. There's a universe There's a bigger reason behind things. Pew Research in 2017 did some looking into this. And they asked people a question, do you believe in God or not? They're going to put it up on the screen for you. They asked a number of Americans this question, do you believe in God or not? They found that only 10% of Americans would say that they do not believe in any kind of divine or higher or spiritual force. They don't believe in anything they don't have faith in anything, which, which really is a statement of faith in and of itself, isn't it? It's saying, it's saying, I have faith that my mind is strong enough and powerful enough to be able to determine if there is anything else. That left a whole big group of people who either believed in some kind of higher power or believed in God. And, and actually, when they looked at it and they asked this question, a quarter of the people who said that they did believe in the God of the Bible as well, or believed in God, as well as half of the people who do not believe in God were actually kind of saying the same thing. They they were saying, look, we believe there's something more. There's something holding everything together. We're just pretty sure it's not the God that the Bible talks about. Which leaves about half of Americans who would say, yeah, yeah, I believe. I believe in the God of the Bible. I believe in God. But that doesn't, that doesn't even really solve anything, does it? Because a number of major religions hold to the belief in the God of the Bible. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all claim in some way to believe in the God of the Bible. But when you look at all the conflict that has happened in the 2,000 years since the Bible was written, that would tell us that not everybody believes in that God the same way. So there's this diversity that still exists today in this belief 
and something higher and some kind of logos and some kind of way to God. Do you know what the challenge is behind all of this and really why there's so much diversity in belief? Here's the reason. God's invisible. We can't see him. You know, it it would be easier to solve this if God had an address and we could just stop over at his house and say, all right, settle this for us. We're having an argument. Or, or, hey, God lives on this mountain. We just got to climb it and we can meet him ourselves. But, But we can't do that. God's invisible. We can't see him. Isn't this really the argument of the 10% that don't believe in any kind of higher power at all? The statement is, how can I believe in something I can't see? If you're like me and and you do hold to a belief in the God of the Bible, then you probably would admit that if anybody in the Bible had a legitimate shot at seeing God face to face, it was Moses. Moses was one of the greatest leaders in all of Scripture, and yet even he didn't get to see God. But it wasn't for a lack of trying. One, One day, Moses, in his time with God, just asked God point blank. He says, God, show me your glory. God, I'm leading these people. You know, like, it, I'm just not sure sometimes. They're driving me crazy. It would just be easier to know that you're, like, I just want to see you. And God says to him, one of these amazing statements in the Bible, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's saying, Moses, you're going to see these amazing attributes about me. You're going to see my goodness and my compassion and my mercy. I'm going to even proclaim my name. You're going to see the wonders that I've done. You're going to see the works, the way that I intervene in your life, Moses. But you're not going to be able to see my face. For no one may see me and live. Even to Moses, God could not be seen. In the community of the people that Moses was leading, the community of the Israelites, there was this one place that they believed that God's presence dwelled. They called it the tabernacle. It started out as a tabernacle. It was kind of a big tent, and they made a permanent place later on called the temple. And the belief was that that God came and dwelled within it. But in Exodus 40, We find out what happened the day they got that tabernacle set up. They they got the curtains put up, the walls were built, the welcome mats outside. And then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Even when God had an address, no one could stop over and see him. And this wasn't because God was some kind of prude and an elitist. And he didn't want people walking on his grass. It was because he was a God who was loving and unselfish. And he knew that if anyone who was unholy came into his presence, the power of his glory would destroy them. And so there was this gap between a holy God and a sinful humanity. The other nations around at that time had the same problem. They had gods that they couldn't see, so they came up with the solution of making idols or physical representations of their gods. 
The Israelites sometimes looked at those nations around them and they said, you know, that's better. We want a God that's tangible. We want a God that's real, a God that we can see. And so they exchanged their belief in the one true God for idols. In fact, you remember the story we just looked at when Moses was asking God, hey God, can I see your face? The whole conversation there was sparked by a business trip that Moses went on. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, spends time with God, gets all these commands written down in stone, and he comes back down, back from the business trip, and guess what all the people had done while he was away? They made a big, fat idol. We do the same thing. In our pursuit of a God who is tangible and real to our lives, we settle for idols that just sometimes seem more real than the invisible God we believe in. Or, or maybe as the Greek world would say it, we all have a logos that holds our universe together. Everyone has some logos that holds their universe together. We all have something in our lives we're counting on to bring our lives together to hold us. And if that thing was gone, we feel like our lives would fall apart. A few months ago, uh, we had a, another couple with some kids come over to our house to visit with us to hang out for the evening. And, and so if, if you have kids and, and you've tried to be social with other couples, you realize that your socialization kind of goes through phases as your kids grow up. There's like the infant phase when you have people over where either you're yelling at people over the top of a crying baby or you're whispering because you just don't want anybody to wake up the baby. And so, so the whole night kind of revolves around what the baby needs. And then you have the, the toddler phase. This is really risky. If you go to someone's house, you, you obviously you have the conversation in the car. But you step in the door, and even through the smiles and the highs, you're like internally doing a robotic scan. Like crate and barrel lamp, retail price $2.99, 2.3 meters away. Because my, my robot's European. I don't know. It's like the whole time you're there, you're trying to be pleasantly relaxed and engaged in the conversation, but like you're just praying silently in your mind, God, don't let them break anything. If you ever want to develop that silent prayer while you're talking out loud, just have some toddlers and go somewhere expensive. My kids are past that age. Uh, we don't do it that way anymore. Now they're old enough. It's really nice. Whenever other couples come to our house, we can sit as adults at the table and talk while the kids go and play, and as long as it's quiet... Uh, we don't have to worry too much, everything's, or as long as it's not too quiet, we don't have to worry too much. So this night, we're having a good time, sitting around the table, the kids are playing, and all of a sudden we hear, I found a dead body! I found a dead body! And that is never a phrase you ever want to hear when you have people over at your house. It's really not a phrase you ever want to hear in your house, period. And so immediately we're like, what is, what's going on? I'm, I'm counting heads, I think everybody's there. And, and, and we find out that, that they're playing this game called Among Us, right? So my son, he could tell dad's a little suspicious of a game with dead bodies. And so he just says, don't worry, dad, it's okay. It's the, it's the game, like the app from the app store that we play on the iPad. I was like, oh, well, sure. I mean, the app store. They never put any games that are bad for kids uh, out there. So what, what am I worried about? Well, it, it didn't seem t too bad, so, so we didn't want to stop the fun and deal with that fallout. So we, my wife and I are giving each other the look of like, what did our kids teach these other kids? And as soon as the taillights are going down the street, of course, we're on Google looking up Among Us. The mobile app game Among Us was the number one hit for those words on Google. I, I found out that Ranker.com says that right now, 
Among Us is the number one mobile app game in the world. Here's how it works. Up to 10 online players are, are, are playing together, and they're all aboard a spaceship. And, and most of the players are crew members. Their job on this spaceship is to do tasks to keep the spaceship's go, spaceship going where it needs to go. But there's also a couple that are imposters. And the imposters are trying to sabotage the spaceship. And the whole goal of the game is for the crew members to figure out who the imposters are before they can take the ship down and destroy them. Do you know that you have imposters in your life? That you have false logoses that appear to be holding your universe together, but really in the end are going to tear it apart? Do you know that you have things in your life that you're clinging to to make your life better, to bring your life meaning and purpose, but at the end, it's just going to destroy you because it's, they're imposters. Do you have imposters in your life? Sometimes it can be physical things. It can be things that we drive into at the end of the day. Or it could be the thing that we drive at the end of the day. It, it, it can be images on a screen that, that bring you false feelings of comfort. It could be maybe an office that represents success and ambition fulfilled. Sometimes it's numbers that represent the deeper imposter. It's that number you see when you step on a scale and you feel like if that number's the right number, then you'll feel like you, you, you have purpose and value. Sometimes it's, a, it's a, a letter on a test. Maybe it's a, a figure when you pull up your mobile app for your bank and you see it in your account. Maybe it's a, it's a ring on a finger and everything that you believe that that will represent. Maybe it's some letters before or after your name. We all have these logoses, these imposters in our lives that we'll cling to because we desire something that is real, something that is tangible, something that's personal to us. Often in the place of a God that we feel is just too invisible that we just can't see. I got to thinking, you know, what, what if our desire for a God who, who is tangible and near isn't really the issue? What, what if our pursuit of a God who, who just is real to us, that's not the perversion of sin, but the perversion of sin is the imposters that will settle for instead. And what if, what if our disappointment with the imposters in our lives points to a deeper, a deeper need that's been given to us for a God who is real? When you think about it, if we were designed to seek a God who is tangible, a God we can know personally, a God who, like Moses said, that we can see his face, then what John writes next in John 1.14 doesn't just make a whole lot of sense. It's actually great news. Because John says this, he says, The Logos, the Word, became flesh. He said, the thing that will truly hold your universe together, the thing that is the ideal, 
that you've been seeking, that thing, that person that has meaning became real in the most real way that we as human beings could ever experience, became real in the most knowable and recognizable form that we could imagine, a form just like us. He's saying the ideal, the logos, became a God with fingers and with toes. And church, this is the best news ever. Because John is saying that the whatever it is you've been looking for in your life, has come and has been made knowable in the most human and recognizable way possible. But he doesn't stop there. He says this Logos isn't, it, it's not like a China shop Logos. It's not a China shop Jesus that you can see but you can't touch. It, it's not like a celebrity that, that you might be able to see from a distance and maybe meet for a moment but certainly never get to know. John continues, he says, the word became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. He made his dwelling among us. For years and years and years, God's glory was set apart in the tabernacle and it was inaccessible. And John is saying that the glory of God in Jesus left the tabernacle and moved into the community. In fact, the word he uses right here, dwelling, actually means tabernacled. It, it, it means that Jesus came out from the inaccessible place of God into the community where they lived. Jesus, the Logos, was now accessible in their lives. He tore down, he tore down the veil that separated humanity and God. And he tabernacled among us. Eugene Peterson has an awesome translation in the message. He says that this way, the word became flesh and blood, and moved into the neighborhood. The glory of God, the thing that you've been looking for, moved into the neighborhood, was in the front yard, and says, stop over any time. Jesus tears down the fences between us and God, and he puts in pathways. Jesus wants to dwell among us. Friend, Jesus wants to dwell among you. He wants to dwell among you. He didn't just come to move into the neighborhood. He came to move into the house of your life and of your heart. He came to tear down that fence that stands between you and, your, you and God because of your sin. And he makes a pathway. He says, God, what you've been looking for, God is accessible to you. We've been looking at these two words the past week from Matthew and John. Two simple words. But when Matthew and John met Jesus for the first time. It was Jesus that said two simple words. He said, follow me. And Jesus speaks those same two words to you today. He says, follow me. Leave behind the imposters that you've allowed to come into your life. And follow me, the one who is real. I have come so you can see me so you can experience me, so you can know me in your life. Have you chosen to follow Jesus? Have you allowed Jesus to move into your life? 
fact, this morning, as we're just here, whether you're watching online or sitting here in this room, I just want to ask you for a moment, will you bow your heads with me? Have you chosen to follow Jesus? I believe there may be someone here who hasn't done that and would like to do that today. And if that is you, I want to say, you can just pray along with me and ask Jesus to move into your life. Just follow along with me as I pray. Jesus, please forgive me for following after the imposters. Things that appear to be real, but are not. I know that you are the one that will hold my life together. I choose today to give you my life. I choose to follow you. I choose you as my logos, the Lord and the Savior of my life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In, in a moment we're going to wrap up, but there's sort of one looming question that I think is there when it comes to this passage and what we've been talking about it. So I just want to bring it up and then we'll talk about it for a minute. You might be sitting there thinking, okay, you talk about this God who we can't see, who is invisible, and how Jesus came, and he was flesh and blood, and, and we could see him. And, and that kind of works really well for guys like Matthew and John, because they got to walk around with Jesus, and they got to see him in their everyday lives. But, you know, Joe, if you keep reading, you're going to see that Jesus ascends up into heaven and goes to be with his Father. And sure, the Bible tells us he's coming again in bodily form one day, but I can't see him. How can I know a Jesus that I can't physically see? I think it's a great question. On one level, I'd say, check your logic a little bit, because if, if your criterion for believing that something is true is that you have to see it, well, then you're going to have to adjust maybe your belief in things like the Roman Empire or Christopher Columbus or like your great-great-great-grandmother for that reason. Because there's a lot of things we believe in that you can't see. But, but, but even deeper than that, it's just a great question. How, how is a world that longs to see a God who is real and tangible, how are they supposed to believe in a Jesus who, who's no longer physically living in bodily form on earth today? The person I think gives the best answer to this question is a pastor. His name's Hugh Halter, and he writes in a book actually talking about the incarnation. He says this. He says, when we're talking about this incarnation and, and how we're seeing Jesus, he says, Jesus came to live our life so that we could live his life. In, in other words, Jesus came in bodily form on earth so that we could be his bodily form on earth. He came and took our flesh, our body, so that we could be his visible body to the world around us. In other words, he's saying, church, we are God's plan for how the world will see a real Jesus in the world today. He's saying, look, this life of following Jesus is not just this internal life of joy and peace and hope. It's way more than that. He's saying it's a life of outward compassion and action and grace and serving. 
He's saying when people look at us, Jesus' body on earth, they are to see a real and living Jesus through us because Jesus didn't come just to dwell among us. He came to dwell through us. In other words, we are to be eyes of Jesus seeing needs around us and the hands of Jesus serving those needs around us. We are to be Jesus' mouth speaking grace and truth into people's lives. We're to have hearts of compassion towards people, knees on which we pray for people, shoulders on which we carry the burdens of others, and feet of Jesus that take the good news about his coming into our world to dwell among us, out to the world, through us. That is our job, church. So when people say, how do we see Jesus today? Jesus is saying, I came to live your life I came to be your flesh. Now, church, you be my flesh. So when we leave these walls around us, we aren't just taking it inside of us. We're taking it outside of us to a world that so desperately needs to see something real right now. A world that needs to see real hope and real compassion. That's our job. Because when you leave these doors or when you hit stop on on the stream... You're not done with church. You're you're just getting started. So our question as a church and our question as individuals is how is Jesus not just dwelling among us and inside of us? How is he dwelling through us? How is he dwelling through you when you go to work tomorrow and you're interacting with that customer who you just dreaded seeing? You've been avoiding them, but now you can't avoid it anymore. Or or that, that boss or that employee that you're just... You know, they, they just get on you. You know, there's something wrong. They need something, but how's Jesus dwelling through you? Or, or at home, in your family, around the dinner table, in your conversation with your spouse. How's Jesus dwelling through you to people around you that need him so desperately? My prayer for us as a church is that we'll be a church that doesn't just have Jesus dwelling among us. Where we have great worship, worship services and we teach the word truly and and we talk about a lot of things that we need to know. My desire is that we as a church will be a church that Jesus dwells through us to one another first and then out into our community. And I invite you to join me, church, in being that kind of place. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you so much for these words in John. Unsurprisingly, yet still amazingly, you can pack so much truth into one word word that can change our lives and change lives around us. I pray that we would be a church that Jesus dwells among and through. May you take the life of Jesus out of this place and into the world around you through us. pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for joining us. I want to invite you back next week. Pastor Denny's got an awesome message plan. The hopes and fears of all this year came in him tonight. He's going to be talking about just about the meaning of Christmas in a unique year like the one we've had. Don't forget, if you're coming to our candlelight services, RSVP, please. It really helps to space things out to keep everybody safe and make our services as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. Have a wonderful week. See you next Sunday.